Hey, good morning. Good to see you if you're here in the building and also if anybody's tuning in online, great to have you with us as well in spirit. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's good to be back. I haven't been up here in a while, but uh, excited to jump into Nehemiah with you. Uh, if, if you haven't been with us, you know that we have been walking through the entire book of Nehemiah, chapter by chapter, and Pastor Brent and Pastor Tyler, too, have just done a fantastic job of, of pulling out some just incredible truths from this book. And we've been talking about what does it look like to rebuild, rebuild our lives, because it doesn't look the same anymore these days, does it? Rebuilding our families. We've even talked about rebuilding our churches. And what does that look like? And believe it or not, we're actually coming to the closing chapters of the book. In fact, next week, Pastor Brent's going to close the series with the final chapter in Nehemiah. But before I go any further, I just want to pause and I would ask you, would you just join me in a quick word of prayer? I just want to invite God into this part of our worship today. Lord, we are, uh, we're grateful. We're grateful to be here today to worship you and to be with our Christian friends. Now, as we open your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. You know, in this message, you've put some things in front of me as I studied that, that moved my heart. And, and I pray that you would do the same this morning in all of our hearts as we talk about the topic of honoring people and honoring you. So we commit this time to you in the strong name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Cool. Well, let's just do a quick, quick review. In the first six chapters of Nehemiah, we saw the return of the captives, and then we saw the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, in particular, the wall and the gates. Then as we got to chapter 8, it was time to start rebuilding the people's lives spiritually. We know that the word of God, it was presented, it was preached by a guy named Ezra. He got up on a platform. He read for six hours, as I recall. We're not going six hours today, don't worry. But it was really cool. The people, this is kind of this revival broke out, this recommitment to come back to God happened in chapters 9 and 10. And so now we come to Nehemiah 11 and 12. And yet another challenge presents itself. As if they haven't had enough, right? Another one. The city's done, the walls are up, the gates are up. They accomplished this feat in 52 days. Okay, that's less than two months. That is amazing to me, the amount of work that they accomplished in that amount of time. This is an incredible accomplishment. I'm just telling you, I couldn't even build a birdhouse in 52 days if I wanted to. And that would be even if I had a do-it-yourself kit. I wouldn't be able to do it. Now this new challenge. The people, they're not exactly rushing in to populate the city that's done. But the time has now come for God's holy city, now rebuilt, to be filled with God's people. There was a hesitance to move. And as I thought about this, I kind of was like, I can kind of relate to this. It's not easy to move. It's just not. If you've done a major move, you know it's a lot of work. Moving to a new location, new neighborhood, new neighbors, hoping that they like you and you like them and you get along. You got new schools for the kids, you got new friends, new places to shop, all these adjustments that we have to make when we move. Remember, when the people returned to Jerusalem from exile, they were living primarily outside of the city. 
Land was cheaper. Even the taxes were cheaper outside of the city. There was more land. You could spread out so you could plant crops and vineyards. You could have livestock and so forth. Sounds pretty good. But Jerusalem, the city, is important. It's important to God. It's important to God's story. And it's important to the Jewish people. Yet, there's a hesitance for them to move in quickly. So Nehemiah, once again, takes up the mantle of leadership and is getting ready to repopulate the city. It's time to move in. Now, between the three groups of exiles that returned from the Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem, they kind of returned in three waves, three waves of people. And the total number of people who returned was about 100,000 Jews. Now remember, most of them were living where? Outside the city, right? While they were rebuilding. Because it actually wasn't safe to live in the city. So now maybe we know why people were a little hesitant to move in. After they rebuilt the wall, it was still not safe because the gates weren't up. Well, then they got the gates up. But do you remember the process? They were basically, they had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because they were constantly being threatened and attacked. That was what it was like to rebuild the city. But the city wall and the gates are done. It's time to move in. Here's what happens next. We're going to pick this up in Nehemiah 11, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. Don't miss that. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended, they honored all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now in verse 1, we find that the leadership set the example of what they were going to ask the people to do. I think that's huge. That's super important. The leaders set the example by resettling in Jerusalem first. And then they had something like a lottery. They cast lots, and their goal was to get 10%, or one out of every 10 persons, to relocate into the city. So they had a lottery, and people were selected and moved into the city. And when they were picked, they did it willingly. Now, when we add up all the numbers of the people that were given to us in the rest of the chapter, we find there's about 3,000 men. And when you multiply that times their families, this comes out to about 10,000 people, which was about 10% because 100,000 Jews came back from captivity. So the goal was accomplished. Pretty smart. Now, the rest of chapter 11 basically gives us the names of the families that moved into Jerusalem. And if you were to actually sit down and read those names in this chapter, it's about as interesting as reading a phone book. Now, what's really sad about that is that there's probably people watching online or in this room that don't even know what a phone book is. That's a whole other conversation. But let me just talk about people for a minute, okay? I want to talk about people. Particularly, let's talk about names, because in chapter 11, we actually have a list of specific names, and it got me thinking about names, names of people. Have you ever shaken your head? This is my rabbit trail. Have you ever shaken your head at some of the names that parents, most often celebrities, have placed on their children while trying to be cute or clever? For example, maybe you've heard of rock legend Frank Zappa, who named his, oldest, or named his daughter Moon Unit 
and his oldest son, Dweezil. Now, to their credit, his kids own it, man. They are rockers to the core. Actor Rob Morrow, he named his daughter Two, spelled T-U. So her name is Two Morrow. I even, I can't even believe this, I even found a story about parents whose last name was Fish. So they named their child Tuna. I'm not sure why parents do this. I mean, these kids got to go to school and deal with this. And we all remember how rough that can be, right? Okay, well now, I, I went a little even crazier with this. I actually started to think about names of, of churches and, and the imagery that that can conjure up. For example, did you know that there's a church in Arkansas called the Flippin' Church of God? I kid you. I promise, none of these are made up. These are all real churches. How about Hellhole Swamp Baptist Church in South Carolina? Hey, where do you go to church? I go to Hellhole Swamp. That doesn't conjure up a whole lot of in- invite in me. How about Big Ugly Free Will Church in West Virginia? Then there's Little Hope, Little Hope Baptist Church in Canton, Texas. And then, there, then there's churches who make the mistake of using their town in the name of their church. For example, Boring United Methodist Church in Boring, Maryland. Weedville, Weedville United Methodist Church. And this, is, this one's probably my all-time favorite. I, I kind of want to work at this church someday. It's a church that's found in Zilla, Washington. It's the Church of God, Zilla. I just want to work there just so I can say that. What's my point? Right, a rabbit trail, come on back, really. What's my point? Names can be important. Names are significant. And when we find names in the Bible, like we do here in Nehemiah 11, as difficult as it may be to read them, these names matter to God. They do. We may not know anybody on this list, but we do need to recognize that this list is important to God. It's, it's like an honor roll. It really is. These were people who were willing to relocate and move into the city to be obedient to God and for the greater good of Israel. And that should be commended. Now we can't forget, guys, God's word is eternal. That means it's going to last long beyond us. Therefore, you know what? The names listed are also eternal. So here's my first of two points today. It's important. It is important to honor good, godly people. We should do it. We should. We should take note to do likewise, to honor good people who've made a difference in our lives and make a difference for the kingdom of God. We should honor them. Let me ask you, when was the last time that that you reached out and said thank you to someone who left an eternal mark on your life. Maybe God's even prompting you. And I would, I would even challenge you a step further that if a name or a face just popped into your head when I said that, I would encourage you, reach out to him this week with an email, with a phone call, and just say, hey, I just wanted to say thank you. Thanks for making a difference in my life. You know what that does? That honors that person. And we should do that. That's important. 
in this list of names found in Nehemiah 11 and 12, not only are their names listed, but some of their responsibilities are listed as well. And I think this is pretty cool that many of the roles, they, they kind of parallel some of the ministries in the church today. For example, in verse 10, we have mention of the priests who were leaders over the house of God or the temple. And in the Old Testament, the leaders over the house of God were the priests. In the New Testament, the spiritual leaders over the church are called pastors. In verse 16, some of the Levites who assist the priests help with the administrative side of ministry. Now, I know church is not a business, but there are businesses, there are business things that still need to get done. I mean, someone has to pay the electric bill. These are, there are administrative things that need to be taken care of. In verse 19, we have reference to the gatekeepers. This would be like our greeter team, our host team, or our security team, and, and who, uh, uh, who are assisting and directing and protecting people. I, I, I thought of uh, Psalm 84, 10. It says, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. You talk about a theme verse for these people that serve in this role. This is a perfect theme verse. So appreciate our host and greeter and security team. In verse 21, you find a reference to temple servants. Now, I'm going to just kind of pastor geek out on you for a minute here. Just go back to the Hebrew word here. The Hebrew word here for servant is nephanim. These would be all the people who help you in a ministry setting. So, for example... The people you leave your, your children with in our children's ministry who pour into your kids while you come here to worship corporately. So the next time you see one of these volunteers, maybe later today, you should go up to them and say, hey, thank you for being a nephanim. And then you'll have to quickly explain what a nephanim is so they don't think that you just insulted them. But it's not an insult. It's an honor. It is. Hey, maybe we should get t-shirts for our volunteers to say, I'm a nephanim. That's a really stupid idea. That was Tyler's idea. Um, in verse 22, we have the singers who are the worship team. Now, let me just get a little bit serious for a moment. The worship team is not here to entertain us. The worship team is not here to perform for us. I think sometimes we can have this misconstrued idea in, in worship sometimes that this is the worship team right up here. And we're the audience. That thought process is completely wrong. The audience in a worship service is only one person. God. He's the audience. Everybody else, everyone out here, you're a part of the worship team. The talented folks up on the platform, all they're doing is helping to lead us into that time of praise. Again, we're all part of that worship team. I love that. Friends, I, uh, I think this concept of honoring good, godly people is so important that I actually want to do it right now. And so here's what I would ask. In the room here, if you have ever served this church, another church, in any ministry capacity, in any position, I don't care what it is, kids, students, adults, small groups, greeter, host, counting team, I don't care. I want you to stand up. I want to see you. In any capacity. Wow. 
okay, look around. Look around. Now, I want to make this crystal clear, and I hope you guys will hear my heart. Eyeball to eyeball. Guys, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for investing in making a difference. Can we give ourselves and the people standing around of applause? You guys can sit down. Thank you. We can't do it without you guys. I hope you know that. We can't. We can't. Well, the focus now shifts kind of halfway through Nehemiah chapter 12. And let me point out just a couple key verses here. We're going to pick it up in Nehemiah 12, starting at verse 27. Here's what it says. For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Verse 30. The priests and the Levites first purified themselves. Love that imagery. Then they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. They were getting ready to worship. I, this is Nehemiah speaking, verse 31, I led the leaders of Judah to the top of the wall and organized two large choirs to give thanks. One of the choirs proceeded southward along the top of the wall to the dung gate. That's a terrible name for a gate, by the way. The second choir, giving thanks, went northward around the other way to meet them. I followed them together with the other half of the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. Verse 40. The two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the temple of God, where they took their places. So did I, Nehemiah, together with the group of leaders who were with me. Verse 43. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day. For God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and the children also participated in the celebration. And the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. I'm going to come back to that verse. Friends, this was dedication day. This was like party time. This was a big deal. We've been reading about all the work and building that's been going on. And now we've arrived at dedication day. Now, dedication... It's an important part of the Christian life. It's a part of being a Christ follower. In fact, if and when you made a decision to invite Christ into your life, you know what you do? You dedicated yourself to the Lord. We, we don't just ask for forgiveness and, and, uh, and, and our sins and, and accept what Jesus did, and then that's it. No, it, it's a surrendering of our lives and asking him to become our Savior every day. That's a dedication. That's what it means to dedicate our lives to Christ. It's a commitment. Then, after making that decision, what do we do? We celebrate water baptism after we've been saved. That's a public declaration and dedication that we make. Many of us, we've, br we've brought our children, or we're going to bring our children or our grandchildren. You know what we do? We have them dedicated at a special service. We dedicate them to the Lord. In fact, we're going to do that in just a few weeks right up here on this platform on November 22nd. We're going to have a child dedication. So I love being a part of that and watching that. 
Because the families stand here and they dedicate their kids by saying, God, thank you for the gift of these kids in our lives. And we want you to be their Lord and Savior. It's powerful. Over the years, we've had new buildings, new ministries, and we've set aside time to dedicate those things to the work of the kingdom. And this is what they're doing here in chapter 12. They're saying all that we've done, this is for you, God, this is for your kingdom, this is for your glory. They're dedicating it to God. The wall rebuilding project was completed. Now it's time for the dedication service. But rather than gathering at the temple building or the city square, I love this. They went right up on top of the wall itself. This is the coolest picture to me. The emphasis of this dedication is on worship and praise. Well, how do you know that? Let me tell you. Singing is mentioned eight times. Thanksgiving, six times. Rejoicing, seven times. Musical instrument, three times. Nehemiah got the groups up on the wall, and he made two huge worship teams. This is so cool to me. They walked on the wall that they had just been that they had just rebuilt. And here's what they did. They walked around. One team went this way. One team went this way. They walked all the way around, and they met at the temple. Super cool. I love this. Now, you guys remember back in chapter 4? If you don't, that's okay. There was this not-so-nice dude named Tobiah. And Tobiah just been picking on him and ridiculing. And here's what he said in chapter 4. He came and he looked at the wall early on. He said, well, if even a fox were to walk on top of that wall, it would crumble. Basically, he was ridiculing, implying poor construction. So what does Nehemiah do? Instead of putting a fox up on the wall, what does he do? He puts two entire worship teams up on the wall to walk the entire perimeter. It's almost as if... Nehemiah is secretly saying, hey, Tobiah, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. I'm just saying. But he never said that. He's, 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 he's classier than that. You know what Nehemiah did? He simply let the work of their hands speak for themselves. That's all he did. Coming back to Nehemiah 12, man, this was a celebratory event. They are celebrating what God had done for them and through them in just 52 days. This is like a Jewish version of the Disney World Main Street Parade up on top of the wall. It's spectacular. This is a party. So these two groups, they now circle on top of the wall. Then they meet together at the temple area where the worship, man, it is it's culminating. There's sacrifices. There's rejoicing. It's so loud that people can hear it far off. Let me read this verse for you again, verse 43. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day. God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration. And the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. Friends, our praise and worship is a powerful witness to the world around us. You know, you know what else I love about this verse? I just got to, it's strategically mentioned that women and children also participated in the celebration. What a cool statement to say, you know what? It is important to teach the next generation the value of honoring and praising God. This was a fight for family moment they were having. 
Super cool. This is the second time that this is mentioned that the voices of the people carried a great distance. Remember, they had no amplification sound. They didn't have a sound system. This was purely their voices. The other time it's mentioned is in Ezra. It says that when they laid the foundation of the temple, the sound of their voices could be heard far off. They were so excited. This moment here is the second time this has happened. Let me say this again. One of our greatest witnesses to an unsaved world is our worship. There's a story in Acts 16. It's about Paul and Silas, two guys that are absolutely in love with Jesus Christ. They're arrested in Philippi on false charges. They're dragged through the city. They're beaten severely with rods, and they're put in chains and cast into a jail cell. Not so fun. It says that about midnight, Paul and Silas began to pray and do what? Sing praises. And then you know what the next part says? It says, the prisoners, the other prisoners, were listening to them. If you tell somebody who lives by you or works by you or goes to school with you, if you tell them you're a Christian, I think for a lot of people it's like, okay. But when you know, but when they know you are a Christian and you're going through hard times, difficult times, now they're really going to watch you. They want to see what you're really made of. They, they want to see what your faith is made of. So, so when we honor God, even in our hard times, in our suffering, man, I'm telling you, that is a powerful witness to the world. Friends, the voices of these worshipers up on the wall, this was a declaration to the world that God had done an amazing work in their midst in the midst of their hardship and suffering. Now, we know that a lot of that hardship, a lot of that pain they had was brought on by their own sin, by their own disobedience. I get that. But nevertheless, they had suffered a great deal in captivity. This was a proclamation to the world that our God is great, even when life is hard. Through the book of Nehemiah to this point, you know what we've seen? We've seen workers on the wall. We've seen watchers on the wall, and guess what? Now we have worshipers on the wall. And in church today, we got watchers, we have workers, and we need both. But now, more than ever, we need worshipers. We do. We need, we need genuine people who will worship and honor God. And this brings me to my second point. And it is important. It's important to honor and worship our great God. It is. Now, I realize there's nothing new. There's nothing earth-shattering about that comment. But sometimes we just got to be reminded that this is important. It matters to God. I want to I say something, and I, I want to say something very, very carefully. Please know that I'm saying this to me first. I'm holding the mirror up, and it might, it might prick a little. It might sting a little. I think as Christians, we need to be careful especially the longer that we're, we call ourselves a Christ follower, we need to be careful 
Because I think what can happen is the older we get in our Christian walk, we kind of become connoisseurs of sermons and worship services. And what, what I mean by that is we have a tendency to critique the worship services, the message, the worship, what we liked, what we didn't like. And all the while, neither the worship or the word is actually penetrating our hearts. And that's not right. Gathering to worship and honor God, it's not about going through the motions. I just, I got to remind us of this, that we can so often see this as, as a religious thing. It's not about religion. It really is about a relationship with the living God. It's about showing up and saying, God, I love you. I'm here to honor you and say thank you. But we can forget that from time to time. Did you know that God actually challenges that mindset several times in the Bible? I just read this two weeks ago in Psalm 50. And I want to share with you some of what God says to us in Psalm 50. And, and it's interesting because most of the Psalms are written by the, the, the author is saying these things to God. Psalm 50 is written as God saying this to us. So I want, I want you to hear Psalm 50. Hey, this is God, your God, speaking to you. He says, you know, I don't find fault with your acts of worship. They're great. It's, it's good that you sing. I get that. The frequent burnt offerings, the frequent burnt sacrifices you offer. But why should I want your blue ribbon bowl? Or, or more and more goats from your herds. Every creature in the forest is mine. The wild animals on all the mountains. I know every mountain bird by name. The scampering field mice are my friends. If I get hungry, do you think I'd tell you? All creation and its bounty are mine. Do you think I feast on venison? Or drink draughts of goat's blood? Can I get at the heart of this a little bit? I think God is trying to say, I don't want just the actions. But we can get so caught up in just doing the ritualistic things that we miss the heart of what gathering for worship is about. And what I learned from the people in Nehemiah 12 is they got back to the heart of what worship was all about, giving honor to their God. Can I show you one more verse from verse chapter 50? It says this in verse 14. God says, that stuff, it's, eh, it's nice, but I don't, I don't need that. You know what he says? You know what I want? Spread for me a banquet of praise. Serve high God a feast of capped promises. Do you know what God really wants? He wants you. He wants you. He wants all of you. He's a jealous God. He loves you that much. He wants all of you. He doesn't want the routines. He doesn't want the rituals. He wants 
your genuine heart to pause and say, thank you, God. Thank you. Back in the late 1990s, there was a song written by a worship leader named Matt Redman from Watford, England. And in his church, the pastor started to feel that during the worship service, the people were singing the songs, but their hearts, they weren't really in it. And so he took a very radical step. He disbanded the worship team, and he got rid of the sound system. Then he told the church, from now on, when we come together on Sundays, we're going to sing worship songs a cappella. And we're going to keep doing it until we get it right. Until we've come back to the true purpose and heart of worship. They started doing this, and man, was it awkward. It was so weird. The people didn't like it. It made people super uncomfortable. But the pastor kept praying for his church. And then they started to get into it. They started going back to the root of genuine, heartfelt worship and faith. And finally, it just started to click in this, this, this amazing thing. It just, this fire and this passion spread through this church. Genuine, heartfelt worship was happening again. Eventually, the pastor reintroduced the worship team and reintroduced the sound system. But man, now the worship, there was just a power to it because it was coming from the people's hearts. Shortly thereafter, Matt Redmond states that he went home into his bedroom and in one setting, he wrote the song, The Heart of Worship. He also states he wasn't trying to write an anthem for worship. He was simply trying to capture the experience of what had happened in his church and in the hearts of the people. And when Matt Redmond shared the song with his pastor, the pastor said, we got to start making this a part of our worship and began singing it. The response was amazing. Other churches picked up on the song. It started permeating through the community and through churches, through the UK, and then eventually around the world. Pastors wrote letters to Matt Redmond from all over the globe thanking him for the song and explaining the experiences that they were having in their own churches. How people were indeed, they were getting back to the heart of worship. I just want to read for you some of the lyrics from that song. And and I would ask that you just receive them in a fresh way this morning. When the music fades, all is stripped away. And I simply come. Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus.
Psalm 50, verse 14 again. Remember, God says, spread for me a banquet of praise. And the cool thing is it reminds me of another banquet that took place years later. Jesus gathered up his disciples, all of his followers, and he sat them down at, guess what, a banquet. And he said, hey, I love you guys. I'm about to take on the sins of the entire world because I love you. I'm about to take your sin and place it on me. And he took bread and he took wine. And he had them break bread and drink wine together. And he said, I want you to remember. Remember what I'm about to do for you on the cross. And he asks us to remember that too, that when we come together and worship, and we take the bread and we take the juice, and we're, we're spreading a banquet of praise to God. You know what we're doing? We're saying, God, thank you. We're saying, Jesus, thank you for what you did for me on the cross. And so I just want to encourage you today, whenever you're ready, just go ahead and take that cup and just have a moment with the Lord and say thank you. Spread for him a banquet of praise as you celebrate communion. Remember when you take that bread, Jesus' body on the cross, and when you drink that juice, remember the blood, his perfect blood that he shed for you, that covered you and erased every sin you've ever committed. So I encourage you to take communion whenever you're ready as we continue to worship. But get to the heart. Get to the heart of it.
So 